Before we invite Chris up to uh, teach us from God's Word, we'll have the scripture reading for this morning. And the passage is taken from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13. So if you have your physical Bibles, feel free to grab it now and flip it uh, to those pages. If not, don't worry, the slides are here to guide you along. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your... Sorry, give me a second. Sorry, from verse 9. Where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Chapter 4 Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have heard the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when, he en when, he, when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Now I invite Chris to explain uh, this passage for us. Uh, while we uh, wait for the children to leave, why don't we turn to our neighbor and ask them the question, do you find it easy to be a Christian? Allow me to pray for God's help before we listen to his word together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you uh, so much for the privilege of listening to your word uh, these last three days together. Thank you that we have this great confidence that whenever the Bible is read and taught, uh, you are speaking, uh, we are hearing your voice, uh, you are addressing our hearts and transforming our lives. And we pray that we would come to this part of your word with that expectation this morning and that you would work in us powerfully and by your grace use what we hear this morning to bring us safely uh, to the eternal rest that you promised for us in Christ. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard the story of Florence Chadwick. Uh, she was a long-distance swimmer uh, who set herself the task of swimming 34 kilometers across the Catalina Channel. Now, that's a channel that separates Catalina Island uh, from Los Angeles. And after about 15 hours of swimming, a, a thick fog descended uh, on the channel. And Florence began to doubt her ability. And she told her mother, who was in one of the sort of the accompanying boats, she didn't think she could make it. She swam for about another hour uh, before she asked to be pulled out into the boat. And as she sat in the boat, she found out that she had stopped swimming just over one kilometer away from her destination. And afterwards, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I know I could have made it. If I could have seen land, I know I could have made it. A couple of months later, she tried again. Now, once again, a thick fog descended during her swim. She couldn't see anything. But this time she made it to the other side. And afterwards she explained how she said she had kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind as she swam. She held on to this mental picture of her destination so that she wouldn't give up. Well, we've come to our final topic, a talk on the topic of rest. Uh, we heard on the first day uh, from Genesis 2 that rest was the original goal of creation. And ever since Adam and Eve uh, we were condemned to restlessness, God has been hard at work to restore that perfect rest of Genesis 2. As we saw yesterday, the climax of God's work was the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we've already had a few hints that the full experience of rest is something for the future. Rest or the new creation, the new Eden, that is our final goal as Christians. And my hope for this final talk is to really drive that home to us. I want to drive home to us that we are en route to rest, that we have not yet reached our destination. But more than that, I hope that this talk will give us a mental picture of that future. 
something that we can hold on to. We need to fix our minds on future rest so that like Florence Chadwick, we don't give up before we reach the destination. And Hebrews is the perfect book of the Bible to help us in those ways. And the letter of Hebrews begins with a dramatic claim that Jesus is God's final word to humanity. But despite that, the readers of Hebrews, they were in danger of turning away from Jesus and giving up on God's salvation. They, they were in danger of giving up, just like Florence Chadwick, so close to the end. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. The writer exhorts them, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now we find out uh, later in the letter the reason that they are tempted to turn away from Jesus is that they are suffering. And they are being persecuted. And so they just want to go back to their old life. To their old religion. That's not because they prefer uh, their old religion necessarily. It's just that their old religion offered an easier life. It was an official religion of the Roman Empire. It was the religion of their friends and family. It was simple maths really. Turn away from Jesus equals no more persecution. And our passage that we just heard read is very much a response to that situation. It, it contains a warning, and then a reminder, and then an exhortation. And it's all based on Psalm 95. And hopefully we're very excited to see that Psalm 95 contains the word rest, that big word we've been looking at throughout the Bible. So look at uh, the, the part of Psalm 95 that is quoted in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. He quotes this psalm at length. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the background at a Psalm 95 is important. And so I put a timeline on your handout. Page is it uh, right there? You should see it on your handout near, near the very end. I try and help us understand the background to Psalm 95. So, Psalm 95 is a poem uh, written by King David around 1000 BC. But the poem itself, it's a reflection on an incident that happened about 450 years earlier, in 1450 BC. And that incident is recorded in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Uh, that was the time when the people of Israel, they were getting ready to enter the promised land. But then the people lost faith in God. They rebelled against him. And they were punished by being denied entry to the promised land. And hopefully it should be no surprise to us by now that the promised land is referred to as my rest in verse 11. That 
rebellious generation, they didn't just miss out on a piece of real estate. They missed out on the place where they could have a joyful, fruitful relationship with God. And it was such a tragic story that King David turned it into a song, Psalm 95. And as we'll see later, King David wrote it to teach the Israelites of his generation a lesson. And now, a thousand years later, after David wrote it, the writer of Hebrews also uses Psalm 95 to teach his readers a very similar lesson. And he does that, in the, the writer of Hebrews does that in three stages. First of all, there's a warning in verses 12 to 19. He urges them not to be like the rebellious generation of Psalm 95. But then in 14 verse 1, to, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1 to 10, he backtracks a little. He reminds them that true rest isn't the promised land in the Old Testament. True rest is a future reality. And then finally, he exhorts them to strive to enter that future rest. So we're going to try and see those things in a little more detail. First of all, uh, the warning. Don't harden your heart. So the writer of Hebrews, he quotes Psalm 95, and then he immediately applies it as a warning. Look at uh, verse 12 again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christians have a responsibility to, the, to themselves and to one another. We need to take care and examine our hearts daily for signs of evil and unbelief. But we also need to look out for one another. Sin is so deceitful that we need constant encouragement from other Christians so that we don't fall for its lies. Every day we need encouragement and exhortation from our brothers and sisters to support us as we try and cling to Christ. I, I recently read the story of a U.S. Uh, Navy SEAL, and he was describing his training. Uh, he wrote that one of the things that was drummed into us, beginning with the recruitment process, was that there has never been a SEAL captured or left behind, living or dead. And during the training, if a classmate or a crewmate got hurt, then it was their duty to carry that person through the rest of the exercise while the instructors screamed in their ears, there has never been a seal, capture or left behind, living or dead. Now, this same guy, he went to fight in Vietnam. He was shot. He was being stretchered back to the helicopter by his platoon, and he begged them, just leave me with a gun so I can try and slow down at the enemy. But he was greeted with seven guys shouting in his ear, there has never been a seal captured or left behind, living or dead. And that's the sort of mentality we need, according to verses 12 to 13. We need to be there for one another. We cannot be lone ranger Christians. We need to exhort one another every day so that we don't fall away. 
And verses 14 to 19, they really hammer home that the danger is real. There's no point starting out as a Christian if you don't finish verse 14. That's exactly what the Israelites did in the time of Moses. They started their journey looking as if they were the real deal. Verse 16, they left Egypt by Moses. But verse 17, they ended their journey as corpses in the wilderness. Why? Because they were disobedient. They were unbelieving. They lacked faith in God's rescue plan. And so they turned their backs on him. I wonder if we are serious about the danger of falling away. And we mustn't rush too quickly uh, to our theology books and say, ah, but don't you know, Chris, we're good Presbyterians, good Calvinists, once saved, always saved. We don't need to take this warning too seriously. Well, that is true. Now, once saved, always saved. But the author of Hebrews is warning us it is possible to look saved on the outside and yet not be the real deal on the inside. We could have grown up in a Christian family and we could have been part of the youth group and the young adults group for many years. We could have a very dramatic conversion story. We might have led Bible studies, led others to Christ. But none of those things are a guarantee of our salvation. None of those things are a sure sign that we won't fall away. No, what matters is that we are trusting Christ today. That we cling to him for the rest of our lives. So that's the warning. Don't be like the rebellious generation of Numbers 14, of Psalm 95. But then, like I said, the author of Hebrews, he sort of backtracks in his argument. He wants to clarify exactly how his readers are in the same situation as the rebellious generation of 1450 BC. And the similarity between them, even though they live two and a half thousand years apart, one and a half thousand years apart, and the similarity is that they are both on the verge of entering God's rest. That's the big similarity. They're both on the verge of entering God's rest. So chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, next heading on the handout, are a reminder. True rest is yet to come. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4. The writer says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, what we're going to see here builds on what we saw yesterday in Matthew's gospel. At rest here describes something in the future. Christ's death and resurrection is the means by which God's rest was restored. So we can come to Christ now and have rest for our souls. But the full experience of that rest is in the future. That's how the paragraph begins in verse 1, and that's how it ends. Look how verse 9 wraps up. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And then, basically, verses 3 to 8 in the middle, so the sandwich between verse 1 and verse 9, in the middle is verses 3 to 8, and they sort of are the evidence, the justification for that claim, that true rest 
is yet to come. And the details of verse 8 are a little bit tricky, especially with a translation like the ESV. But I think the clearest part of the argument is right there in verse 8. Look at verse 8 closely. He writes, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. To every Jewish person, they would have assumed that God's people entered God's rest in the days of Joshua. In fact, like I mentioned in the, the second talk, uh, in the book of Joshua, uh, it specifically and repeatedly tells us that the Lord had given them rest through Joshua, as said in the book. But the point is, if Joshua had really given them rest, well, then why would David write Psalm 95? 400 years after Joshua, David is warning his generation who are already in the promised land. He's warning them, don't miss out on God's rest. That's why the writer of Hebrews draws attention to the fact that David uses the word today in Psalm 95. To, uh, look at verse 7. Again, God appoints a certain day, calling it today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So Psalm 95, it isn't just a poem about history. It isn't just sort of ancient news. No, it is a message for that generation who are already in the physical promised land. Don't harden your hearts today, David says. Don't miss out on God's rest today. Don't be fooled just because you are in the land of Israel that you are truly at rest. Psalm 95 is speaking about rest in the future, something much bigger and better than the physical promised land. Now, of course, this should be familiar to us by now. What Joshua did was only a foretaste of the real thing. So imagine that uh, you receive an email uh, from Scoot or, or SIA, if you're a bit more high class, uh, confirming that your flight has been booked. That's great news, isn't it? But that email is not the same thing as being on the plane. The email anticipates the flight. But if you don't go to the airport and use the ticket, well, then you will not get to where you are going. Well, similarly, Joshua didn't restore the original rest of the seventh day. Joshua and the promised land, they're like the email. They anticipate what God intended to do fully and finally in the future. The Jews, they shouldn't have been satisfied with the promised land any more than you or I should be satisfied with a confirmation email uh, from Scoot. So verse 8 again, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there is still a Sabbath rest for the people of God. True rest is yet to come. And then verse 10, I think this is the last tricky detail, verse 10 is crucial because it connects this future rest with the original rest of Genesis 2. So you notice in verse 4 that the writer actually quotes Genesis 2. 
But then in verse 10, he makes an explicit connection between the rest of Genesis 2 and the future rest that he is referring to. So look at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So what was lost in Genesis 2 can be restored when we enter this future rest. And that means until Jesus returns again to bring us home, we are a people who are waiting. We are a people who are waiting to rest. Jesus has died and risen again. He has secured that rest for us. And we are in the process of entering at verse 3. But we still haven't arrived. The best is yet to come because true rest is yet to come. Now, let me just uh, do a slight sort of aside, some implications that we can draw uh, from that. And when it comes to rest, as we think about this big topic of rest for our souls, we must remember that we live in the now and the not yet. So the prosperity gospel, it focuses too much on the now. It says, look, you can have all the blessings of rest right now in the present. Health, security, success. In other words, the prosperity gospel says it's possible to have a complete experience of a joyful, fruitful relationship with God right now. As if we were already in the new creation. But of course, that sort of teaching just wouldn't fly with the author of Hebrews. Even when the Israel were living in the promised land in the golden age of King David, true rest was still in the future. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, we are still waiting. The best is yet to come because true rest is yet to come. But my guess would be that most of us, we understand the danger of the prosperity gospel. We wouldn't fall for those errors in a million years. But then there's an opposite danger that might be more tempting for us. And that is to think exclusively in terms of the not yet. In other words, there's a version of Christianity which is so focused on the future or so suspicious of a prosperity gospel that we speak and act as if there is zero experience of rest in the present. We expect nothing in terms of a joyful, fruitful relationship with God now, today. But again, that doesn't fit with what we saw yesterday. It doesn't fit with what we saw here, we see here in Hebrews. Jesus offers rest in the present, a restored relationship with God, an easy yoke, and a light burden. He sets us free from the slavish commands, religion of the Pharisees, and from relating to God on the basis of rules and commandments. Or notice the language of Hebrews 4 verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. Notice it's the present tense. We could even translate it, we who believed are entering that rest. It's not heaven on earth, but it's almost like we have one foot in the door of heaven. We've received a real foretaste of the future rest 
that God promises. So even though we still struggle with sin, our relationship with God has been restored. Even though we suffer from illness, persecution, hardship, we are still able to engage in fruitful gospel service. Even though we will die physically, we know that we are already spiritually alive in Christ. If we have put our trust in Christ, we are already experiencing something of his future rest. And we should enjoy that. It should put a smile on our face and a song in our hearts. So that's an aside. And when it comes to rest, we must remember we live in the now and the not yet. And back to our passage. We've heard the warning and we've heard the reminder. And finally, we come to the exhortation. Strive to enter God's rest. Hopefully, we're following the argument. So in chapter 3, verse 7 to 19, he warned his readers not to be like the rebellious generation of Numbers 14. Then in chapter 4, verse 1 to 10, he backtracks, tries to remind them that true rest isn't something for the past, it's something for the future. And then in these final verses, 11 to 13, he concludes with an exhortation. Strive to enter God's rest. So look at verse 11. He says, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, of course, hopefully we spot the irony in that command. Striving is not restful. Striving means effort, sweat, tears. The race, as he will call it in chapter 12. It means straining with every fiber of our being, trying to reach the finish line. But the irony is deliberate. The future rest is so wonderful, so worth it, that we should be prepared to work hard to get it. Now, of course, striving shouldn't be confused with earning our salvation by works. Now, Hebrews is as clear as any book in the New Testament that we are saved by faith in Christ and that we continue our Christian life through faith in Christ. There's no sense in which we earn our salvation by works. And in fact, we are experiencing rest from our works because of Christ's death and resurrection. So to build on the, on the previous analogy, if the Old Testament is like the, the email from Scoot that anticipates the flight, well, then putting our faith in Christ, it's like boarding the plane. It means that we are en route to our destination. And the plane is carrying us there. We're not sort of flapping our arms, trying to fly uh, by ourselves. No, the plane is taking us safely to our destination. We are experiencing rest from our works because of Christ's death and resurrection. But consider again their original situation. They are suffering. For being Christians. They are being persecuted. They know that if they stick with Jesus. They will receive abuse. Confiscation of their property. Imprisonment. Maybe even death. It was very costly. For them. To keep trusting in Christ. It was requiring daily resolve. Daily determination. It's like they're on the plane but they're experiencing turbulence. Or you're sitting beside a passenger who keeps 
bothering you and really makes your flight very unpleasant. And you have to keep telling yourself the destination is worth it. I'm not going to jump off the plane to escape this temporary suffering. That's what it means that they have to strive to enter God's rest. It's costly to keep believing in Christ. But the writer of Hebrews says it will be worth it in the end. Now, it might seem like verses 12 and 13 are very unrelated to verse 11 uh, and indeed to the rest of the chapter. Verse 12 is a classic verse that Christians like to put in a picture frame or, or on a fridge magnet. But actually, these verses about God's living and active word are a crucial part of the exhortation. And we know that because verse 12 begins with the word for. So the logic is strive to enter this rest for. Verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this is what the writer of Hebrews, uh, why the writer of Hebrews has spent so much time unpacking and explaining Psalm 95. He is saying Psalm 95 is God's living and active word. Psalm 95 is sharper than any double-edged sword. That's why I'm teaching it to you. He said a very similar thing right at the start of the section. Did you, did you notice in chapter 3, verse 7, how he introduced the words of Psalm 95? Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, not past tense, as the Holy Spirit once said, or as the Holy Spirit used to say, but as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, God's Old Testament word is living and active. That's why he spent so much time and ink explaining it uh, and explaining and applying Psalm 95. He knows that it is God's word that can stop them drifting away from Christ. He knows that it is God's word that can expose their hearts, 4 verse 12. God's word that can convict them of their sin, 4 verse 13. He knows that God's word can warn and remind them and exhort them. So far from being a, a sort of random uh, little add-on, at verses 12 to 13, they actually explain what the writer of Hebrews has been doing for these last two chapters. And I think that's meant to show us that God's word, the Bible, it must be at the center of our lives if we want to strive successfully. If we want to reach God's future rest safely, well, we are going to need the Bible to get us there. Now, only the Bible has the warnings, the encouragements, the promises, the instructions that we will need to make the journey to our future home successfully. It's the ultimate survival guide. God hasn't wasted his breath on a single word in the Bible. He's given it all, it all to us so that we can read all of it to help us get home safely. Speaking personally, for much of my life, I find that a struggle to be regular in my quiet times 
And one of the things I find really value about weekends like this is that it reminds me how important it is to read my Bible every day. And I know that can sound like a very cliche thing to say to your quiet time, but it's so essential. I hope one of your resolutions after a weekend like this is to read your Bible more. And this passage gives us a very specific reason to do that. We need God's word to reach God's future rest. Enjoying a joyful, fruitful relationship with God is the goal for which we were made. We cannot afford to miss out. And reading the Bible is the key to making our journey successful. But how else could we apply these words from Hebrews to ourselves, especially in light of everything we've learned about God's rest over the last few days? Let me uh, do two final applications for us. First of all, a warning and then an encouragement. First, let's think about a warning from this passage that some of us, not all of us, but some of us will need to hear. Just remember the original uh, situation, the situation of the first readers of Hebrews. They are tempted to turn away from Jesus because they want an easy life. Flying with Jesus International Airways had turned out to be a very turbulent journey, and now they wanted to jump off the plane. Now, our situation might be slightly different from theirs, but there are lots of ways that we can choose an easy life over Jesus. You know, an irony after a weekend like this is that we could actually turn to overwork or our career uh, for an easy life. That might seem like a very bizarre thing to say. How could working 24 hours a day at my job be an easy life? How can focusing all my energy on my career be an easy life? Well, very simply, because that's what most people in Singapore expect you to do. Your parents, they expect you to climb the career ladder so they can boast about you at Chinese New Year. So they can, you can earn enough money to provide for their retirement. If you prioritize Jesus and his people over your career, you risk incurring the displeasure of your parents. The constant nagging, the disapproving looks, the tense family meals. For many of us, it will be very tempting to avoid that discomfort by relegating Jesus below our career. Anything for an easy life. Or maybe it's retirement, a genuinely easy life. I just want to stop. And that's the thing that I really, really want. And if Jesus is going to get in the way of a comfortable, easy retirement, I'm not so interested. Maybe he just needs to take a little bit of a back seat. I'll serve him when it's convenient. I'll serve him when I'm not traveling. I'll serve him if I like the ministry. Uh, just an, what I want is an easy life. I've worked very hard. Now is my time to stop. Lots of ways that we could prioritize an easier life over living for Jesus and serving Jesus. So we just need to hear uh, the warning in this passage. It's not worth it. Might seem in the moment that, yeah, it's better just to sort of not have to endure the turbulence, endure the difficult fellow passenger, but keep our eyes on the future. The destination is worth it. The striving, the sweat, the tears of serving Christ, following Christ, 
uh, is worth it. So that's how this passage might warn us, especially if we are turning away from Jesus uh, for an easy life. But I know that many of us are working hard for Jesus and his people. We're serving him. We're pouring out our lives for him. And I hope that this passage is an encouragement to us. It is worth it. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Think about all the things we've learned about rest this week. It's a joyful, fruitful, relationship with God, the very thing we were created for. We've received a taste of it already as we've come to Jesus in repentance and faith. We have one foot in the door of heaven. But don't give up until you experience the fullness of rest that God has promised us. The story told about a Singaporean girl who was taking an evening walk with her father around the Malaysian countryside. And as she walked, she was staring in wonder at the stars that she can't see in Singapore. And as she looked up, she exclaimed, Oh, Daddy, if the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, what must the right side be like? It's really wonderful that we can experience joy in our relationship with God now. It's fantastic when we see some of the fruit of our labors in this present life. But even our best, most joyful moments as Christians, they are just a small foretaste of the future. If the wrong side of heaven is so beautiful, what must the right side be like? When we finally enter God's rest, we will experience never-ending joy in God's presence. Everything we do for God will be fruitful all the time. We will be with our brothers and sisters forever. The best is yet to come because true rest is yet to come. So we want to keep going, serving Jesus and his people. It is worth it. Let's pray. As we close, our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us a vision of the future, something that we can hold in our minds and in our hearts so that we don't give up on following Jesus. We know that there are many things that might tempt us to do that, not least our own sin, which desires an easy life uh, rather than the difficulty of following him. But we pray, Father, that with the uh, vision of rest in our hearts, we would keep going, we would keep striving, and that you, by your grace, would bring us safely home and to be with you forever and ever. Please, Father, convince us and encourage us that the best is yet to come, because true rest is yet to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.